Hi readers and welcome to episode 28 of Lost the Plot, the Tinted Edges monthly podcast all about books. I'm your host Ang Harrod and today we have a special guest, author and editor of the online journal Feminazi, Zoya Patel, who is going to be talking to us about memoir. I'm not a very positive person. Uh, that sounds pretty optimistic like, to me. I'm quite cynical, so I'm like <laughs> struggling to think of what the best possible outcome will be, but I do think that we're seeing some kind of shift and it seems yeah. to be moving in the right direction. Zoya will also be chatting to us about her brand new book, No Country Woman. If you want to follow along and find out more information about all the topics discussed in this episode, you can check out the show notes on the Lost the Plot webpage at www.tintededges.com slash lost dash the dash plot. First off, some updates. Now, you might remember the Future Library Project, the art project that selects 100 authors over 100 years to submit an unpublished manuscript to be kept in a vault until the 100 years is over. Basically, the most beautiful and heartbreaking project ever because of all the books I'll most likely never get to read. Anyway, the fourth author, Turkish author Elif Shakaf, has handed over her manuscript and revealed the title of it, The Last Taboo. And then in just as exciting news, the fifth author for the Future Library Project has been announced, and I was thrilled to hear that it is Korean author and winner of the Man Booker International Prize, Han Kang. I can't wait to hear what the title of her manuscript is when she submits it next year. There were quite a few exciting bookish events on over August. First was Love Your Bookshop Day, and I decided to do a little bookshop crawl and go along to as many events as I could. I started out with brunch at the National Library's Bookplate Cafe, hit up Paper Chain in Monica for a bit of drawing and a cupcake, went along to Harry Hartog in Woden to enter a couple of contests, and then finished up at Muse in Kingston for a glass of bubbles and, of course, more books. Another great event was Zoya Patel's book launch at Muse. It was absolutely packed to the rafters and a great opportunity to hear more about what goes on behind the scenes of writing a memoir. But if you didn't make it, don't worry, you will be hearing from Zoya in just a tick. Then there was the incredible 50th birthday celebration for the National Library of Australia. The NLA threw its doors open and I took advantage of a really fun treasure hunt to go explore areas of the library that I had never been in before. There were kids' show bags, stalls, performers, everything. My only regret was that I missed out on the cake cutting, but all in all, a fantastic way to celebrate 50 years of being a national icon. Finally, just another shout out to some of our friends who have some crowdfunding campaigns going on at the moment. You might remember our friend Erin Clare from episode 18, who spoke to us about her feminist fairy tale project. Well, her campaign for her book, The Adventurous Princess and Other Feminist Fairy Tales, is live, and she has nearly tripled her original goal. You have until the 30th of September to support the project and pledge for a book, art prints, and more. If she reaches $14,000, then she's announced that there will be an additional full-length fairy tale in the book. You can check out the campaign via Kickstarter and follow Erin Claire illustration on social media. Links, of course, in the show notes. And finally, our friend Sean from the more recent episode 25 has his campaign going for his second collection of Canberra-inspired short stories, Capital Yarns, Volume 2. Sean has met his goal and the campaign closes on the 24th of September, which I think is the release date of this episode. 
and there are heaps of really adorable pledge tiers. Volume 1 of Capital Yarns is basically sold out everywhere, so get in on the final day, check it out. Sean also does a radio play style podcast, so if you want to have a bit of a taster of some of his short stories, check out his website in the show notes below. I'm very sorry to report that while there isn't much in the way of positive books for the world news, there has actually been more street library crime in Canberra this past month. One of Canberra's newest street libraries was stolen the day after it was put up in the suburb of Franklin. Unfortunately, there's been no news or any indication of who stole the street library or why, so if you see it, please report it to the police. August was another big month for book news, starting with lots of book awards. The winners were announced for the 2018 Hugo Awards for Best Fantasy and Science Fiction, and N.K. Jemisin has won a trifecta with a Hugo for each book in her Shattered Earth series, this year for the third book, A Stone Sky. I was a bit surprised because it's good, but I didn't think it was as good as her first novel in the series, The Fifth Season. There are way, way too many categories and winners for me to go through, including one called Best Fan Cast, but I was intrigued about what the difference is between a novella and a novelette. Apparently a novelette is a 7,500 to 17,000 words book, and a novella is 17,000 words to 40,000 words. It seems like a pretty arbitrary distinction, but there you go. The shortlist for the Readings Prize for New Australian Fiction has been announced. Six books have been shortlisted, The Lucky Galah by Tracy Sorensen, which I've read, The Town by Sean Prescott, Pink Mountain on Locust Island by Jamie Marina Lau, The Fireflies of Autumn and Other Tales of San Genesi by Moreno Giovannoni, Pulse Point Stories by Jennifer Down and Flames by Robbie Arnott. The winner will be announced in October. The Miles Franklin Award, the prize awarded annually to an Australian novel of highest literary merit, has been awarded, and the winner is author Michelle de Kretzer for her novel The Life to Come. This is the second time de Kretzer has won, the first time in 2013 for her book Questions of Travel. There were some pretty outstanding book discoveries this month. A public library that is thought to be 2,000 years old has been discovered in Cologne, Germany. Archaeologists were first unsure about what kind of building it was, but niches in the walls were then identified as where scrolls would have been kept. They're estimating that the library housed as many as 20,000 scrolls. This August, a team of 20 librarians at the New York Public Library gathered together for a bit of book discovery hackathon called Title Quest 2018. After receiving hundreds and hundreds of comments on one of their most popular online resources, a page called Finding a Book When You've Forgotten Its Title, the library decided to put its librarians' research skills to the test. Over two hours, the librarians tried to figure out what books commenters couldn't remember the titles of, and they made 48 educated guesses. If you've ever spent time on the Reddit page R What's That Book, you know that often people don't have a lot to work with. Anyway, I'm feeling pretty inspired by Title Quest, and I might do something myself on the Tinted Edges Facebook page. So if you want help tracking down a lost book, get in touch. I've always wanted to be a detective. In not quite discovery news, and I guess transitioning into new releases, historian Stuart Kells has a new book out called Shakespeare's Library about his search for the great playwright's missing book collection. 
Kells has done quite a few interviews about his book and dropped some tidbits about what might have happened to some of Shakespeare's book collection, but I think if the library had been discovered, we probably would have already heard about it. So, other new and upcoming book releases. Three of Georgette Heyer's famous Regency romance novels have been released with brand new covers. Arabella, Frederica, and the Grand Sophie each have gorgeous, lively new covers with dogs, accessories, and flowers. My mum loves Georgette Heyer, so I think it's about time I gave one of these babies a go. Chinese science fiction author Xixian Lu has a new novel out called Ball Lightning, a standalone novel about a boy whose parents are killed by the elusive phenomena of ball lightning and who becomes obsessed with unlocking its secrets. I can't wait to give this a go. I loved the brilliant novel The Three-Body Problem, and this is really some cutting-edge science fiction. Emily Rodder, one of my favorite authors as a child, has a new book out called His Name Was Walter. I seriously adored Emily Rodder as a kid. When I was about 11 years old, I actually got glandular fever, and we'd read her book Rowan of Wren at school. So while I was sick, someone borrowed all the other three books in the series for me from the library, and I just devoured them all while I was stuck in bed. And then, only just a few years ago, I actually finally got around to reading the final book in the series, Rowan of the Buckshaw, and I cried and cried reading that book, so I'm so excited she has a new one out. His name was Walter is about four kids and a teacher who find a mysterious book and spend an evening reading it and finding out about the tragedy of this guy Walter's life. Now the next big book announcement is an author you might not recognize, but whose book you definitely will. Scott Pape, famous for his financial advice book The Barefoot Investor, has a new book coming out aimed at kids. The Barefoot Investor for Families, which is scheduled for release today, I think, has more pre-orders than Harry Potter and the Cursed Child did in Australia. The book includes 10 things kids should learn how to do with money before they leave home, and it sounds like it is going to fly off the shelves. So a fair few book adaptations have been announced, and one I'm very excited about is the HBO adaptation of Audrey Niffenegger's novel The Time Traveler's Wife. The book has had a movie adaptation, but it just wasn't quite as great and gritty as the book, so I'm keen to see what HBO comes up with. Who Magazine has also very helpfully put together a list of other books being turned into films in 2018, and one I'm really excited about is Crazy Rich Asians, which is actually out in cinemas at the moment. It's based on the novel of the same name uh, by Kevin Kwan, and I'm desperate to read the book before I go see the film. Now, there were plenty of book controversies going on in August. The debate about phonics continues with the Australian publishing an article about an expert's condemnation of Aussie kids struggling to read. It's behind a paywall, or I guess at least it is if you max out your quota of free Australian articles, which unbelievably I managed to do. So I can't 100% remember exactly what they were saying, and I'm not about to jump on and subscribe either. However, the bare bones of the phonics debate is about what is the best way to teach children to read? Basically, there are two major schools of thought about teaching kids to read in a very, very simplistic, basic summary. Whole language focuses on looking at words as a whole and what they mean, whereas phonics looks at breaking down words into their most basic components, sounds, known as phonemes, and letters, known as graphemes, without worrying too much about meaning and context. There are also plenty of people that think that this is a false dichotomy, and I think I'm inclined to agree. 
In other news, Australian young adult author John Marsden has said on the weekly talk show panel Q&A that he wouldn't write his series Tomorrow When the War Began today. Marsden was asked whether his books have raised a generation of Australians who fear foreign invasion, and Marsden said that he hoped not. However, he said that given the way Australia treats refugees by demonising people legitimately seeking refuge and locking them in indefinite detention, he would be in a very different position when it came to writing about threats to Australia 20 years ago when the books first came out. Author Maxine Beniba Clark said that she grew up on Marston's books and her son is now reading them, and she thinks that they meant a lot to migrant children who might have grown up in areas of conflict themselves. However, author Mohammed Ahmed said that when he read the series, he interpreted it as a paranoid white nationalist fantasy about a group of coloured people illegally invading this country, and that he finds the narrative deeply ironic because that's what the white population did to the indigenous population. Marston then responded saying that he wanted to write a book that evoked a strong response in people and he wanted to put his characters in a very high stress situation to kind of see what they did. However, he only alluded to this, but I do think it is worth noting that he actually did write a graphic novel years ago illustrated by the incredible Sean Tant called The Rabbits, which is 100% about the treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people by white settlers. Now, Look, I could do a whole episode on the ethical responsibility of authors in the books that they write, but that is not this episode. So, ABC has put together a brilliant interactive story called Bear Finds a Voice. After analysing Nielsen Bookscan's 100 top-selling children's books, the ABC has created a children's story in response to the kinds of books that actually are not being published. The findings were mostly to do with gender, and last year apparently there were three male characters for every two female characters, and more than two-thirds of the lead characters were male, and male authors were much, much more likely than female authors to actually leave female characters out altogether. The story that they've come up with is gorgeous, and you can check it out in the show notes. Now, August had a big annual celebration, and kids around the country got dressed up for Book Week. However, not everyone was excited about it, and there was a very scathing article published in the Mercury about a mum overwhelmed by the burden of making costumes for her kids. There actually ended up being quite a robust discussion on the Tinted Edges Facebook page about expectations of costumes and the effort various parents go to, including one dad who made an incredible Elmer costume, and kids who even make their own costumes. There were also some interesting discussions about the difference in expectations between private schools and public schools and kids being bullied when their costumes don't look as expensive as other kids' costumes. I definitely think it sounds like a bit of overkill to call for book week to be banned entirely but it does sound like it is a bit of a worry if it's become more about one-upmanship and less about fun and books and reading obviously now there were some outrageous book crimes reported in august a chinese crime writer was convicted with murder and has been sentenced with the death penalty 22 years after committing murders that allegedly inspired his as yet unpublished book Liu Yongbiao was apparently involved in the killing of a guest at a motel during a robbery, as well as the killing of the couple who owned it and their grandson in an attempt to cover up the original murder. Apparently, despite alluding to his next book about a writer who gets away with a series of murders in the preface to his novel, The Guilty Secret, it wasn't until modern DNA testing technology linked Liu with the crime scene through a cigarette butt that he was finally caught. 
When police finally arrested him last year, he said that he had been waiting for them to catch him all this time. Meanwhile, an American librarian based in the state of Utah has been caught after spending 89,000 US dollars of public money on a mobile game. The man called Adam Winger was actually the director of North Logan City Library for three years, and he was busted using city credit cards to buy gift cards for digital currency called Amazon coins, which he then spent in a game called Game of War. He also apparently doctored library invoices to falsely account of how much money he spent. Winger was sentenced to 30 days in jail, 100 days of community service, and agreed to pay $78,000 in restitution. The judge also apparently ordered that he write a 10-page report on the book A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, What I Learned While Editing My Life by Donald Miller, which is a sort of, I guess, self-help book by an author who gave himself a second chance at life. I actually like the idea of book reports as part of sentencing, and um, I wonder who I can write to about that. <laughs> anyway, in Canberra news, and um, actually the only piece of real Harry Potter news we have this month is that a Harry Potter-themed shop called Quizic Alley, sort of like a play on the word uh, quizzically, has opened up in Canberra. It just opened on the 13th of September, and unfortunately, no, I did not make it to the opening, and I haven't had a chance to check it out. The identities of the owners were previously a secret, but the Riot Act then revealed that they are, in fact, champion athlete Michael Milton and his wife Penny. I will definitely need to get down to the shop, which is at 5 Peary Street in Fishwick, and see what they've got in store. Now, unfortunately, this podcast is a little bit late if you wanted to meet this deadline, though the website says that they may accept late submissions. But the ACT Legislative Assembly's Standing Committee on Environment and Transport and City Services has announced an inquiry into ACT libraries. They are specifically looking into the current and future needs for library sites and the best, most cost-effective model of library service points. The terms of reference are on the ACT Legislative Assembly website, and you can check out more information in the show notes, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out of the inquiry. In exciting library news for New South Wales, the New South Wales state government has committed $60 million in funding for its public libraries, which will help the 370-odd libraries across the state expand their collections, carry out major upgrades, and extend their services. The news was very welcome after 5% of recurrent funding was slashed in the most recent budget, which threatened libraries across the state. Finally, the news broke advertising a most incredible job, a bookseller to live on an island in a luxury eco-resort called Senevafushi in the Maldives, operate the resort's bookshop and write a lively blog about their experiences for three months. Now, understandably, this sounded like the absolute dream job, and so I scoured the internet trying to find out how to apply. It wasn't entirely clear, but it seemed like you just had to write to the email address at the bottom of an article on the bookseller website, and apparently they ended up being inundated with applications ranging from film directors to a member of the America White House press team to a refugee from Syria. Fifteen candidates were shortlisted for the role, and I look forward to seeing who the lucky winner is. Now, speaking of dreams coming true, it is time for our special guest, who has just had her debut book published. So we're sitting here in CMAG, which is the Canberra Museum and Gallery, I think it's called, uh, just in Canberra City, and we're here with author and editor Zoya Patel. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, 
Zoya, you've just got a new memoir out, and we will talk about that in a second. But I just wanted to ask you in the beginning, what makes a memoir distinct from other forms of autobiography? That is a really good question and has kind of become one of my um, most favourite positions to try and explain to readers. The key difference for me is that a memoir is really about using personal experience and personal history to make a point about a broader societal issue or a broader kind of cultural touch point. So it's not about direct autobiography and I think it also allows for more flexibility in the format. So my book is a collection of essays and it's not in any way chronological. Uh, I can do that in memoir but I wouldn't have been able to do that in autobiography. And I think it also distinguishes between that kind of age-old question that you get which is how can you write a a memoir when you're so young? Well, memoir isn't about telling my life story. It's actually just about using personal experience, like I said, to speak to a bigger issue. So I think that's the key difference. Yeah, so um, I know you publish a lot of memoir on your website, Feminazi, and I've actually read a lot of memoir recently by authors like Maxine Beniba-Clark and Roxanne Gay and Benjamin Law. Um, do you think that there's something about the genre of memoir that really lends itself to telling diverse stories, I guess especially for women of colour or queer writers? I do think that. I think partly it's because we still have such a lack of diverse stories in our mainstream culture that memoir allows us to find an opening with an audience that's quite relatable and resonates. So the telling of personal stories, I think, creates an opportunity for readers who might not identify with the issues that the writer is talking about to to kind of feel that emotional connection and that's quite important. I also think that there's still a lot to be achieved in terms of telling minority stories in the media as well and so memoir is quite a natural format for that and I think the kind of resurgence that we're seeing in memoir as a genre especially in Australia actually with Australian writers and Australian Diverse Writers is partly speaking to that. It's about adding those stories into the mix and kind of embracing the multitudes of that instead of relying on one or two well-known voices to tell minority stories from only their perspectives. So I think the format definitely allows for uh, more diversity and also a kind of opening for minority voices. Do you think that there's a bit more of, I guess, a demand for memoir as well? Do you think people are a little bit more likely to maybe pick up a memoir than they are to pick up, I guess, other kinds of texts that would talk about diversity issues? Yeah, definitely. I think the angle of having a true story is a great hook for a lot of readers. I've definitely found in the response to my book, it's been easier in a way for people to understand some of the more challenging concepts that I raise when they see it in the context of my own experience. Yeah. I think there's a lot that I talk about when it comes to race and multiculturalism in Australia that can be quite challenging and confronting to kind of white people, essentially, non-people of colour, uh, because it points to the gaps that we have and the places where we're not doing as well as I think a lot of people assume we're doing because they haven't had that lived experience of growing up as an immigrant or just experiencing not being white in Australia. So having the personal story in there makes it a lot more relatable and I think also almost gives me the evidence for what I'm saying so that people can understand it without immediately questioning it. Yeah, I I think uh, I really found that with uh, Maxine Beniba Clark's book, The Hate Race. You know, I felt like most people could pick up this book and really relate to that 1990s primary school 
experience and more the pop culture and you know the Cabbage Patch Dolls was one example that uh, really sort of stuck with me but with this whole perspective that just would be completely um, completely unknown to most white Australians I think you know um, so you know your own memoir which is called No Country Woman um, has just been published just this this last month I think like Yes, it's three weeks as of today. Oh, well, <laughs> congratulations. Thank Hot you. off the press. Um, and it's a great read, and I'll be reviewing it uh, pretty shortly. But Thank you so much. Um, you know, it's obviously, it's full of really personal stories. And I went and saw you speak at Muse um, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I guess I see a lot of authors talk, and, and they often ask questions about the themes, and they're asked questions about the writing and the characterization and the plot, and you know, all of these sort of, I guess, literary choices that they've made. But I find when people are being interviewed about memoir, they're often getting actually asked to kind of justify or explain personal experiences and personal choices. How have you been finding that? Yeah, I think that's completely true. Um, it's been really enjoyable when I do get to talk about craft because I agree that really the kind of thrust of most interviews is around personal experience. I don't mind that because as you mentioned earlier I have written a lot of memoir myself just generally in terms of personal essay and I understand how people's experience of reading memoir is partly about the experience of reading the words on the page and the flow of those words but it's also really about connecting to the personal story that is the main kind of driving force behind the book so I was quite prepared for that. I think what's taken a bit longer to get used to is answering questions on behalf of my family. Yes. I usually write very much from just my point of view and this book has a lot about my family in it, a lot of our shared experiences and that's quite challenging on a number of levels, partly because I don't want to tell their story. Um, I don't believe in kind of taking that voice from them in that sense. And I think even everyone would understand that no matter how uh, similar your upbringing is with your siblings and with your parents being there, you all take away a different version of yep. those experiences. And I think the second part that's difficult is that in our culture, we really don't share much about our private lives publicly. There's a real sense of stoicism in the Fijian Indian culture that I'm from and there's a fear of kind of airing our dirty laundry or putting things out into the public sphere that we then can't control. So those were things that I mitigated while writing the book and I spoke to my family a lot about it and I was actually just really pleasantly surprised when they read the book and all had a really positive reaction oh, to it. Oh, brilliant. Which is fantastic. So that's made it a bit easier knowing that I have their support. So when I am asked questions about our shared life, I know that we're all on the same page with that. But it is sometimes a little bit challenging and definitely depending on the thrust of the question, I have to remind myself not to get defensive yeah. and to see it for what it is, which is putting part of my life into the public sphere makes it public property and I need to be able to respond to that and to take those challenges as they come because that's kind of serving the purpose of the book. Yeah. Ideally, if people are interrogating it in that way, it means that they're taking something from it. So I try and stay big picture about it. Doesn't always work, uh, but for the most part, it's been, it's been good and illuminating so far. And it's, you know, definitely from things that I've written, uh, <sighs> It's hard to sometimes just let your work speak for itself, especially if people kind of challenge you on aspects of it. You kind of want to argue about it because it's it's your baby, and you're sort of like, well, I'm not the right, you know, I, I want to tell you what to think about this, but also I guess you know sometimes you you have to let it go and just let it 
people read it how they read it. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think what's interesting when you write this kind of book though, is that you get a lot of people who you know who want to read the book because also it's memoir, so it's about your life, and so they feel like they can connect to it because they know you as a person. Yeah. What's been fascinating is, you know, the majority of my networks are people who are pretty much on the same page as me politically and culturally, and you know, I've had these conversations with them in some way, shape or format before, so they kind of knew what they were in for when they started reading the book. But then I also have acquaintances and friends of friends who, you know, are white and don't talk about race and haven't really explored multicultural issues and it's been a lot more confronting for them. Mm. I've had some really interesting responses from, you know, disbelief that identity could be such a big issue in my life, which I always find really funny when white people are like, why and I'm like well you know you probably wouldn't understand unfortunately and that's part of the purpose of this book but also I've had a little bit of um, defensiveness from some readers even readers who I didn't expect to take that kind of the the kind of confrontation of white mainstream culture and the harms that it can you know project onto minority groups and voices they've taken that in a way that is very personal mm. and I understand that on one level because it's the natural response to any form of call-out culture to feel defensive first we all feel that way when somebody points out our privilege or points out a way in which we might be blind to disadvantage and intersectionality in different ways but knowing how to approach that as a writer when it's you know directly a result of your own life and also the life that you've chosen to share through your book is really challenging so managing that has probably been the hard part because I can't let the work speak for itself they yeah. expect me to be able to follow that up with a conversation because they know me so <laughs> that's been really interesting I'm surprised that people are, I, I you know reading this book I felt like actually you came across as extremely patient and balanced thank you compared to um some other writers who I think um I never felt like you were angry, even though, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with being angry, but I, I, sometimes I do find that writers who are a bit more angry tend to get an angry reaction, so I'm surprised that even though you've obviously put so much effort into into just very cool logic, keeping it very fact-based, keeping it, very, you know, that people still are having like quite a strong reaction. I really appreciate that you feel like I'm not angry because the blurb of the book that the publisher put together says that it's a memoir full of fury and the first time I read that I was like I'm not angry and then reflected on it and was like you know there is an undercurrent of anger to this book but I have tried to be as kind of rational and respectful as I can be yeah. however I think that when you take it all the way back I've been thinking about this a lot when you take it all the way back to people who really haven't interrogated these issues at all so are coming at it with like no background knowledge of the kind of woke identity politics culture that we're in right now for a lot of these readers, it's literally the first time that they've been categorised according to their skin colour as white yeah. people. Yeah. So even just having that generic term applied, it's the first time that they've ever been homogenised as a group according to their skin colour. That's an experience that for people of colour we experience all the time and it's yeah. just taken as an obvious part of our lives and the way that people will see us and you already have a range of strategies that you've built up over time to address that when it comes up, to show what kind of person you actually are, to kind of individualize yourself. Mm -hmm. But it's, it is confronting if that's the first time that you've experienced that. What I'd like readers to do when they feel that defensiveness kind of bubble up is to read the book with that knowledge and realize how that actually speaks to their privilege, ultimately, that yeah. they have been able to work walk through the world without having to 
ever question that they belong there and ever question that they'll be taken as individuals and that they have kind of power over their own narrative in a way that a lot of people of colour just don't. So I'm sympathetic to that, but I also at times feel really impatient when I get, you know, when you have to go right back to basics about something like this. But I think at the same time, it kind of points to the importance of these types of stories. And I really hope that my work can sit alongside those writers you mentioned earlier, you know, Maxine, Ben Law, Roxane Gay, uh, writers like Alice Pong and Nikia Louie. I think that there's a really exciting movement happening across the world and also particularly in Australia in terms of trying to push that conversation. So I try and think of it as being part of that conversation and people will come at it at whatever stage of the journey they're yeah, on. Yeah. So actually one thing that I, uh, that I thought really made your book stand out compared to some of the other ones that I've read um, is just the way that you really spend so much time unpacking and analysing the issue of class. And um, I, I just think that a lot of people, when they talk about race or when they talk about you know, uh, diversity issues, they often talk about them in a really sort of isolated, disconnected way. And I really, I, I really enjoyed sort of seeing through your eyes you know, your experiences in Fiji, you know, with your family and then not with your family and your experiences in India and your experiences in Australia and just how that really kind of shone a light on your appreciation for how how much class there is just within your own culture, let alone within, you know, the entire world. Totally. I think the only really uniting factor between those three countries is that they were all colonised by the British and they were all given a a democratic capitalism. essentially and you're right I think class is something that we often don't interrogate when we talk about race and diversity just generally and I think it's particularly relevant in Australia because the left wing of which I'm definitely a part we have a habit of isolating issues in that way and claiming that racism is based on kind of ignorance and what I try and unpack in the book is that ignorance is a uh, a force that's definitely part of racism and, and the way that racism manifests in, in society. But I think also we can't ignore the fact that a lot of the in-group, out-group mentality that drives racism is driven through scarcity and inequality. And the fact is that there are higher rates of racism amongst people who are in lower socioeconomic demographics. And that's because what we're speaking to there is this idea of blaming other groups for the scarcity that we have in resources rather than looking at the system which actually distributes those resources. And I think that we have a we do have a bad habit of treating each of these issues as if they occur in a vacuum from each other when in fact it's all perpetuating the same cycle. Yeah. And even with gender equality, I really don't think that we can meaningfully move towards gender equality or reconciliation or racial equality until we address the inequity of our economic systems, yeah. which are driven around making people argue based on difference and pointing to other factors to describe economic inequality rather than the fact that it's all it's designed to be unequal. And that's the only way that I suppose we are able to deal with that difference is to try and um, reflect it or pin it onto something external because it's actually really depressing when you think about the fact that you know inequality is just coded into our 
like the fabric of our society? How do we start addressing that? It's a huge issue and it's really hard to meaningfully engage with it because, God, I don't have the answers. I have no idea how we're meant to move forward. Yeah. But I feel like acknowledging it has to be the first step. Well, we live in a society where it's sort of... There's definitely, I've always come across an undercurrent of this idea that it's a meritocracy and it's inherently fair and the people who have a lot of wealth deserve the wealth and the people who don't have wealth, that's because they've done something wrong or they've made bad choices. And and I think people... I think that's a lot easier for people to accept than the totally. idea that maybe the system is kind of wrong or out of whack or totally yeah. and I think also like understanding the intergenerational poverty yeah. that's kind of inflicted through a broader cycle is something yep. that's really challenging I talk really briefly in the book about being on um, this board that I was on back in 2013, which was the Australian Social Inclusion Board. And as part of that, I had to do a lot of kind of reading and understanding of intergenerational poverty and disadvantage, and also particularly um, generational unemployment. Mm -hmm. And once I started to really look at those systems, it became really clear to me how actually we're entrenching poverty. Because with each generation that continues, what we're doing is making it harder and harder for the next generation of those particular groups. Like even if we like drill it down to one family group, the access to education, the likelihood of employment, it diminishes with every new generation. And I think when you add to that, the kind of rhetoric that we have in our political system right now about migrants and about immigration more broadly, of course it fosters racism. Mm -hmm. You know, you're basically throwing a drowning man the wrong lifeline. It's like a lifeline attached to nothing, but it's something that they're holding on to. And like, that's the problem that we have is we're not even talking the same, we're not using the same language even at this point. So I think we do have to try and connect those dots a little bit more, Um, but I genuinely, I find it so overwhelming. It is so overwhelming and I just find it really difficult because I see so many you know, people on social media, people, people in my own sphere on social media who are just so quick to, you know, point the finger at other groups and as, as the easy, well, you know, oh, it's, it's migrants, it's, you know, African people in Melbourne, it's asylum seekers, you know, and as I, I guess the easy rationale for why things might no, not be so easy in their own lives and it doesn't seem to matter how much research or statistics or fact checking or blocking or anything that you, yeah. you throw at the, like it just is like a never ending I don't know yeah I think that part of what I really feel is that it's a combination of systemic changes that try and actually address the driving factors and also a kind of primary prevention education piece that needs to happen at the same time and I think yeah. writers like Maxine Benet Clark for example are doing a really great job of that with her picture books and her children's books yes exactly and that's you know one important part of that puzzle but yeah I really want to see more political action on these issues that isn't and it's just not going to happen in the kind of political system that we have right now right like it's all interconnected when you look at things like housing affordability and then you look at things like education and you look at things like asylum seekers there are lines drawing all of those things together and it would mean like rigorously changing our taxation system and just moving away from the capitalist way that we distribute wealth and you know those things happen in pieces and perhaps we can move towards 
a better version of what we have right now, but I struggle to see how we'll fully address this issue. I don't think that racism is going anywhere, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think, I think you know, given the last decade of Australian politics, it's short-term gains at the expense of long-term planning, right? Totally. You know, it's totally. I mean, even the way that um, people like me get treated versus immigrants who might be from the exact same background as me but have lower English literacy mm-hmm. and are more recent immigrants and you know probably haven't had access to the level of education that I've had. I'm now one of the, you know, I'm a good migrant who people can hold up and say, look, multiculturalism in Australia is going so well. Yeah. What that doesn't take into account is the privilege that I've had of growing up most of my life in Australia and of, you know, from when I was about... 10 or 11, my family was firmly middle class, and that meant that I had a particular pathway going forward. Even when I look at cousins of mine who've migrated recently to Australia who have a tertiary education, their experience is so, so different from mine because they have a stronger accent, some of them wear a hijab, like they play into a different rhetoric about migrants in Australia. And that unpacking the privilege that exists within migrant groups is really really challenging especially when right now the conversation is still like hey guys don't be racist you don't want to start complicating that too soon but at the same time I don't think we can have any kind of meaningful discussion without allowing for that complexity yeah so it's just a real challenge and one thing that makes me excited is seeing the strands of um the kind of groups of new writers who are coming onto the scene and new kind of activists and artists from all different walks of life I think we're in a moment where there could be some really exciting changes that are happening and there's clearly some appetite for that now so maybe this is the beginning of something that will you know lead to some kind of change in the future you can kind of I'm not a very positive person uh, that sounds pretty optimistic like, to I'm me quite cynical so I'm like struggling <laughs> to think of what the best possible outcome will be but I do think that we're seeing some kind of shift and it seems yeah. to be moving in the right direction yeah well I, and I think you know just given the way that things have played out I think maybe people are starting to realize that this I don't know, this really sort of aggressive political system that we have at the moment, just it's not working. It's not working for anyone. And no one, it's ugly. No one is getting anything out of it. So, you know. Yeah, if only we had a meaningful alternative, hey? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. That got depressing quite quickly. Yeah, well, I guess, um, so my last question for you, going back to something positive, which is your amazing book, which three weeks old or three weeks young even thank you um now obviously you're going to be really busy uh touring around and promoting your book do you have any upcoming events in Canberra that people can come see you talk at I sure do so I have one on the 10th of September at Woden Library oh that's soon that's just next that's week very soon so people I better get this one. up before then <laughs> <laughs> um and then there's also one coming up at Bookface in Gungarlin yes um which I have now forgotten the date for. I will find it out. And it's I'll later this show. month. It's yep. in September. Um, and then there will be some other things coming up later in the year, which I'll keep updated on my website as well. Um, but one thing I'd really like to do is get Feminazi events back up and running, Yes. Um, which probably won't happen now until early next year. But I suppose that's kind of my focus now is trying to get the groundwork um, underway for that. Yeah, because before... Um, so just for my listeners, Zoya went away to Scotland to write her book and drink a lot of coffee with your cat I think yes that was mostly what I was doing yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, but prior to that um, Feminazi had the feminist book club which I went along to quite a few of and that was brilliant so I would love um, to bring that back well, if um, you need any help totally let me know I'd love to bring it back in a more um, 
engaging format as well. We had the panel and um, in front of an audience and yeah. I'd love to make it a little bit more interactive. So yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely stay tuned. That could well be on the cards. Um, and there's a few other projects that are kind of like bubbling away. So hopefully there'll be a bunch of new stuff coming in the next few months. Gosh, well, you know, it's definitely keeping out of trouble, aren't you? <laughs> Staying very busy. It's the way I stay sane. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Zoya. That was brilliant. Thank you so much. That was author Zoya Patel chatting to us about her new book, No Country Woman. You can pick up a copy at all good bookstores, and unfortunately, I didn't get this episode up quite in time for the two events she mentioned, but you can find out more about which events she'll be attending in the near future, including Canberra events, via her website, www.zoya-patel.com, and keep up to date about what's going on with Feminazi at www.feminartsy.com. Now, August was a really good reading month for me. After getting bogged down in the 1,200-page fantasy epic novel Oathbringer by Brandon Sanderson, I managed to knock out a total of six books, and a lot of them were actually really good. My 2018 Goodreads challenge continues to seriously lag, though, and I am going to have to do some heavy-duty reading to meet my goal of 80 books by the end of the year. So, although it was 1,200 pages, Oathbringer was a pretty good book. It's the third in Sanderson's Stormlight Archive series, and it touches on some more heavy-hitting social issues than his previous books did, but oh my gosh, it was so long. I also read No Country Woman by our guest this episode, Zoya Patel, and it is a clever, fascinating book about race and migration in Australia. It's a very quick read with some very sharp insights, and I definitely recommend everybody give it a go. Another book I cannot stop thinking about was the set book for my fantasy book club, City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty. It's set in the Middle East and Africa, and oh, it was so refreshing and compelling to read a different take on the genre that wasn't something that was derivative from Lord of the Rings. And I was thinking about this book weeks after I finished it, and I cannot wait for the next one to be released next year. Another fantastic book I read was Sean Tan's little graphic novel called Cicada. Oh my gosh, I was in tears by the end. It, this book was absolute perfection. I don't even want to tell you anything about it, but if you have not read Sean Tan yet, Cicada is the perfect place to start. Finally, I got a review request from an author called Rhea Ariel, who is from Trinidad and Tobago, to review her book of poetry called Love and Other Inconveniences. I actually started reading this as I was waiting for the bus to work, and I was absolutely hooked the entire ride. I'm not super into poetry, but I thoroughly enjoyed this, and I liked it so much I bought a copy for my friend. All right, readers, that's it from me. I will be back in October with another book-themed topic and with lots of book news and book reviews. If you want to support this podcast and help to keep it on air, check out the Patreon page where you can support Lost the Plot for as little as a dollar an episode. You can also follow the Tinted Edges Facebook page to keep up to date with upcoming book events. You can leave a review on iTunes or you can subscribe to the Tinted Edges website. Thanks so much for listening.